0: Hey, this is Hank Hill, and you're listening to my
1: favorite podcast, Mouse and Weens.
0: Mouse and Weens Mouse and Weens Mouse and Weens and 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 Mouse and Weens Mouse and Weens Mouse and Weens.
2: Hello, hello. Welcome to Mouse and Weens. To Mouse and Weens. I'm Mouse. I'm Joelle. I'm the mom one. And I am Weens. I am the single Julianne one up in L.A. That's right. And we are going to hear part two of our interview with W. Earl Brown. It's amazing. Check out the first interview and this will be the second half of that. That's right. We have learned all about him being an actor in Something About Mary. We learned about him in Scream. We heard about him in Deadwood. We're going to continue the talk about Deadwood. And then move on into his project, his movie called Bloodworth, which stars Chris Christofferson, Val Kilmer. Who else? And he wrote and
0: produced it. It was an amazing accomplishment. And uh, Dwight Yoakam was in it, and Hilary Duff. And then also, we're going to hear about his project right now. You can go and see it on
2: YouTube called Dad Band, and there's a member Allison Chains in there too. So it's a really cool. That's right. And we're going to hear about his own band called Sacred Cowboys and hear about all his adventures. So let's just get right into it. Here is W. Earl Brown.
1: I would not take anything for those four years spent, or three seasons, but four years total that we were creating that story.
0: So why did they cancel it? I had read something about you going to a party and meeting with one of the execs who said that was a huge mistake, right? It was a huge mistake.
1: yeah, he said that in the book. He didn't say it to me at that party. Okay. Um, the guy that ran the network, he was a comedy guy. He, he was never um, – um, drama wasn't his thing, and we were developed under the regime before him. So we were never a favored son, Deadwood meaning the show. And they were expecting us to become Sopranos. And the irony is we were on track to become Sopranos because they didn't become the water cooler show till their third season. So we had all of that momentum building up and looking back, there was writing on the wall. I just didn't recognize Chris bumped us from our premiere date in March. Um, He bumped us and that happened in November. And that took us out of Emmy contention because we weren't on air in time. So all of that shit's momentum, you know, all of that, the awards and all that stuff. One thing beats the other and it's a snowball. And so uh, Chris, it wasn't until, you know, the fact that I don't know where you stumbled on, I guess I have told that story about walking into the Emmy party or, or the Oscar party. And first fucking person I run into was him. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I blamed him for what happened and that was only a year after the show had been unceremoniously killed off. It was in, There was a book called um, um, Difficult Men, which was about uh, the, the second golden age of television and about David Milch and, and David Chase and um, um, all those great shows, Breaking Bad and the Sopranos and The Wire, David Simon. And there's a whole chapter devoted to Deadwood and Milch. And in it, Chris says you know he said that that was my mistake that was my biggest mistake and he explained himself more and again he said it was a negotiating ploy I needed to cut down the costs I needed to get the production rein it in under control and we were out of control expensive they still made money that's that's the thing they were still making money yeah um but a lot of of backstage politics paramount had a a housekeeping deal with david so they owned the rights outside of north america but they weren't putting in any production funds no overages or anything so that was a bee in the bonnet or a burr under the saddle yeah (laughs) um and um there was a myriad of things went into him making that and again he said it was my beginning of a negotiation and then david just went off the rails and called everybody and said the show was canceled so um so, yeah, I guess hmm. there's blame all around. But where um, was but- the
0: money? Did because every costume, every background person had on beautiful outfits. Where was the majority of the money? Was it mostly shot at Melody Ranch? Yeah,
1: in we one, were one all, location. We hardly ever left. We left when the very beginning, when I throw Brom Garrett off the mountain, I throw him off the mountain at Angel's Crest and I crack his skull in Pine Mountain. Yeah. There were two different locations. Or, or vice versa. I'm sorry. Threw him off of Pine Mountain. Cracked his skull there. We had the goal mine set and the cemetery set. were off. They were up at at um, Pine Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise- did you know
0: Brian Haynes pretty well too, the location manager on that? Do you oh, remember him? Oh
1: yeah, yeah, I remember him. Yes.
0: Yeah, I worked with him a few times. He recently passed from cancer too, a couple years ago. But he oh, was on the he was on the whole show too, and he yeah. just he said it was the best job he's ever had in his life, and he's a veteran. Everybody.
1: Every single person involved felt that. Yeah. And that's why having the movie, being able to have a final chapter to somewhat of our, on our own terms, to be able to say hello and goodbye to those people that you shared such an intimate part of your life with, and you're forever bonded to, um, seeing Dave's decline. I had not seen him in person in, in been about a year and a half before we started production. And he knew then, he was diagnosed then, when, when I had lunch with him, and he was having real memory problems. Um, but the, the physical depletion was, was difficult. Um, but it was a blessing to be able to say hello and goodbye. Because I couldn't let it go before. I could not come to terms with the way things happened. You know, to give so much of yourself, and I'm not the Lone Ranger in that, everybody did and everybody felt that way and for us to get cut off at the knees as i said earlier for it to stop it didn't end it stopped um so um it was a blessing to make that movie (laughs) oh all my shit got cut out of it
0: no Uh,
1: who did that oh a lot of stuff got cut out
0: thank god they did the movie though that gives people mm-hmm. some peace and some closure.
1: Well, there's a great lyric by Ray Wiley Hubbard that I try to live my life by. And it sounds so simple, and I'd never heard it phrased that way till I heard Ray sing it in the song Mother Blues. Every day that my gratitude is higher than my expectation, I have a good day. So, I love that.
0: That's amazing. I, love that. Yep. I haven't heard that, but it does feel like that is the counter to, I think... A, it was also like a famous quote of man's greatest downfall is his expectation. It was like Kierkegaard or something. And it's true. Mm-hmm. And if you just kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> put that gratitude in the beginning of the day. That's good. Okay, now, couple of questions for the people that would kill me. All of the fans that wrote in about Deadwood... <laughs> First of all, what is the goo
2: or gel that you smear all over yourself? Oh yeah, yourself? that was my question. That was so her. What was the fight scene and the goo and the gel season?
1: The, well, bear bear grease. We went out and killed a bear, bowled off fat. He's all thick.
2: So wait, uh, is that uh, so the punches you, slip off you? Is this like the you, boxers? Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, Well, boxers use Vaseline. Yeah, That's okay. why you see Vaseline them in the corner, so the glove won't grab skin. Because see, that's how your skin gets torn. When you when you get punched, the skin tears. Right. But if so, they would grease up in a big fight like that. Um, what it actually was, it was, KY jelly, and and I forget what else he put in, like bits and pieces of stuff to look like fat. It's primarily.
2: <laughs> and you got you got down with that KY jelly too. You you
1: went there with it also, huh? All of it. All of it. <laughs> I was well greased. Because
2: you don't know where they're going to grab. That was good. And I yeah. thought you were going to come out with your haircut. After, after he made that comment, like, oh, you, you are at a disadvantage with that hair, but they kept your hair. I was glad. Well,
1: well, there's one, that that second scene, and this is an example of talking to David. And it's the only example where David did not rely on, he let the image overrule the written word. The scene afterwards with Johnny Burns after that fight uh, was a, a scene. It was written. It was like two or two, three pages between me and Johnny where I don't want to leave the room. I don't want to see Al and he's trying to convince me. And I said, David, I, I said, I think it would be stronger if I don't say anything. And if I'm naked, like if if you just see, you see the damage of his body, you see the cuts and the scrapes and the bruising that's starting and he can't speak. I think that would be more powerful. And that was when Dave says, yeah, that, let me think about that and then he came back with their you know a half hour later he had rewritten it because we were starting to i, I want to say that was written the day of um because i remember you know not that i i clamor to be naked nor is anyone clamoring to see me naked <laughs> um, it was
2: powerful though
1: yeah no it's just an incredibly powerful image Mm -hmm. um because he's there by that lamplight in a dark room and this guy who you've just seen you know pull the eye eyeball out of another human being and then crack his skull open um kill somebody with his bare hands and then that's what led dave i can't remember if it was written you know a rough draft before but that whole speech that al has that's what happens when you kill a man you know up close and you see the light go out of their eyes um I you know I can't even give it justice to try to quote it, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah that's that's what it was. It took so much out of Dan, and it was also the time that the closest he'd ever gotten to dying because he was he was one breath away from death, mm. and through a mere twist of fate he found an eyeball.
2: Yeah,
1: and that uh-huh. comes from a that comes from a true story. I I don't know if you want to hear. Uh, that Tell well, it. people this is, about I, the fight. All right.
2: Yeah, this is crazy. Well,
1: I had written in season two, my grandfather, um, my mother's dad would not allow anybody to call him son of bitch. Cause don't you allow that? Cause that's defaming my mama and nobody, nobody defamed my mama. This was a man who was very violent. And I told my mother what he had said. This was back when he was still alive. And mother, she goes, well, that was ironic. Because if there was ever a bitch that walked the planet, it was my grandmother. That woman was evil, (laughs) which went a long way to explaining why my grandfather was the way he was. But my mother's first husband had abandoned my, he got my mother pregnant. She had a child at 16 years old, uh, my sister, and he was 27 and he abandoned them. My mother went back to high school. She was her class salutatorian and uh, as a single mother. She had tried to go to college. She wanted to, but she couldn't. It's a long story. My mother made a great success of her life, um, and she did it herself. So you can say I'm drawn to strong women, and Freud can, can work on that one. <laughs> um, but um, her first husband, he had abandoned my sister. They were living back home with my grandparents. My uncle, who was nine years old, witnessed it. Um, they were at the local fill-in station, and her ex-husband pulled up, and he's getting beer to ice down his, his or ice to ice down his beer without driving around drinking, and he, my grandfather said Loman, Loman, we need to talk. They go around back. He says, "You got a daughter. You you, know, you don't want to be a daddy. That's obvious. But there's diapers. There's food. You're gonna pay for that." Turns to walk away, and Loman says, "Yeah, you better walk away, yo son of a bitch." My uncle said he goes, "Daddy turned," and he always taught me how to hit because he was a big man. And he said he hit Loman so hard, Loman's eyeball popped out. He goes, Loman fell to his knees, and he goes, his eyeball is literally dangling on his cheek. And he uh. said, and then he fell over on his side. He was by a coal pile, and he said, first of all, Granddaddy starts stomping him with his boots, and then he grabs a chunk of coal and he's about to crack his head open. My grandfather, I saw it. I witnessed it three times in my life, and I don't doubt there is. His pupils would dilate. His eyes would go black. And that's when I say that scene that was so fucking felt that. I'm sure some of that blackness had seep through my genes. Um, You know, his pupils would dilate. And Gerald said, I saw his eyes and I knew he was going to kill him. And he, he, nine years old, he goes, I go running up. He's got the chunk of coal above his head. He's about to brain him. And he said, I grab him by the chest and I'm pleading with him. Daddy, stop. Daddy, stop. Um, So I wrote that. It, and called it "son of a bitch." That Soapy, the soap seller, bar soap, five dollars inside, bar soap. That he's pulling the scam inside the Gem Saloon. And I toss it, and he calls me a son of a bitch. And I wrote exactly what happened in my family. Well, we never used it. Wow. Um, and and I had called it story segment "son of a bitch." So when it rolls around to the fight in season three, um, David had brought us together. Me, me, Al Graff, who played captain, Mike Watson, the stunt coordinator, and Dan Manahan, the director. And he said, uh, because it's just written, it says, Dan and captain fight to the death. At the last minute when you think Dan's going to die, he's victorious. That's all it said. And he said, you have three days to make up a fight. He said, I have three rules. Uh, Number one, I want everything realistic. I don't want any big cowboy roundhouses flying through plate glass, none of that bullshit. Um, number two, I want every time I don't want the audience to be able to draw their breath every time they think it's going to ebb, I want it to escalate. I want five minutes of increasing tension and violence. and number three, I want something i ain 't ever seen before. So you guys make it up. So we had three days to rehearse create it, and we had two days to shoot it. So David would come in at the end of every day and watch what we had done, and we tried a bunch of different things. And Dan Minahan was the one, he goes, we, he said, I wanna use the meat market. We've never been in it. And you guys in amongst the raw meat and blood is a great image. And I had suggested the drowning in horse piss. I said, these are like two cavemen you know, beating themselves and he's trying to drown me in this mud and piss. And um, so we tried, tried this, tried that. So David, at the end of the second day, we, we don't have an ending yet. We've marked through everything that we've done. And Dave said, "Uh, I don't know how the fuck we're going to get out of this. He goes, I went back to that son of a bitch thing that you wrote. And uh, I was thinking maybe we, but that's, you know, he's killing you. He's overpowering you. There was, I will not use the name, but he was an advisor on the show who used to be an enforcer in Vegas. And his thing was to take people's eyeballs out. He would hold them down. He was a huge man. He'd use his thumb, put it by the bridge of their nose and pop an eyeball. So Milch says, he said, I looked at your son of a bitch thing. And then what's his name? He said, "Uh, I was thinking about, you know, with him, but but that's not going to work either because of, you know, you're dying. You're being overpowered. I don't know how we're going to get out of this fucking thing. So I play poker with Jerry Cantrell, um, the musician, Allison Chains, the hard Mm -hmm. rock band. Well, Jerry's one of my close friends. And I play cards at his house and he, he was big in the Deadwood. That's how we met. He was a Deadwood freak. I was an Alice freak.
2: And you guys and did um, dad rock together too? Dad, dad, dad band. band. Dad band. Yes. That's yeah.
1: It. Um, but it was at his house playing poker. I told him about what we were doing and I told him about son of a bitch. I told him and he goes, that happened to my brother, Dave. I said, what? He goes, Dave was in a biker bar in Oklahoma. He got in a fight. And he goes, this guy had him on the pool table. He had him by the ears. And he was a straddle of him on the table. And he's cracking his head against the slate, the edge of the pool table. And he said, Dave thought he was going to die. He goes, he was getting tunnel vision, like the lights are going out. And he said he was just trying to push the guy off of him. And he felt his ring finger. He couldn't see it, but he felt his ring finger hit something soft and squishy. And he knew it's an eyeball. And he jammed his finger into this guy's skull and pulled his eye out and saved his life. So I go to work the next day, and I go, David, 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 i got an ending. So I lay out the David Cantrell Oklahoma biker story. That works. Hey, pro, uh, effects, can we get a dangling eyeball? Yeah. Okay, yeah, get a dang, make an eyeball. It's dangling. So we're oh, leading up to shooting it, God. and Al Graff, who was playing the captain, who played in the NFL, who's, who was a tough some bitch, our other guy, the other advisor, was was there that day, the the enforcer. And um, Graf says, "What would happen, like if if the eyeball's out?" I said, "Well, your other the capillaries would all burst. Your good eye would probably be flooded with blood. If any eye, if your optic nerve's still there, the eye bouncing could probably still see." Oh my and, Well, I see the advisor down the way. I went, "I'll get an answer." So I go jogging down there and I go, I, I got a, I got a question. What happens when somebody loses their eyeball? And this old man, he's leaned up against the post and I go, I ask him and he goes, they scream. Oh. They scream a lot.
2: Oh my, oh
1: my God. I felt that chill down my spine of like, Oh shit.
2: And down this your optic not, nerve.
1: <laughs> this is not pretend. This is a guy who's, who has literally held people down and took, taken eyeballs out of their skull. He's probably dug holes in the desert. Oh shit. This ain't pretend. Yeah. Oh. So I go back down and craft goes, yo, what did he say? So just scream. Just scream a lot. Just scream. <laughs> and, uh, and
0: that's what was in the
2: scene is him yeah. just screaming over and over again. Yeah. It's chilling that scene is i mean i have the ebbs and flows were there i mean when you're face down in that puddle i'm like this is it my heart is beating edge of the uh, edge of your seat if anyone hasn't said what
0: it's season two season three Three. episode
2: five okay
1: yeah you notice the coup de gras is not shown it's off screen you hear me split his skull open you hear the watermelons crack open, but you don't see it.
0: I'm very you glad you didn't show that. Whoever decided that it was too much at that point.
1: Well, David, David wanted to see the impact on its its Swearingen and and Hurst. He wanted to see it on them, and I saw that. Now that's funny. I had my um, ultimate. The first time I saw that, um, Dusty and Billy of ZZ Top, I invited them. They were heroes. I still have one of my posters from 1970s of those guys they were one of my favorite bands and i got to know them
2: That's and so, so i
1: invited dusty he was huge in the deadwood so they're going to come out and play cowboy with us they're going to be hawkeye's guns their first day on set milch kind of knew who they were you know he's not a music fan but he knew and everybody's like oh my god zz todd's gonna be here well david we i introduced him and he goes i have something to show you fellas earl you're gonna want to see this come to me and it was in the editing room and it was the first edit of that fight. Oh, so man. I not only got to create that, I got to watch it with my rock and roll heroes, you know, in the editing room. So You have yeah.
0: arrived when that kind of stuff happens. Right? You're like, you know,
1: <laughs> if I die Finch today. Oh,
0: <laughs>
2: that's amazing. Yeah.
1: That's
2: great.
0: That's, okay. So I'm going to segue into another question from Phil Rude, who's a super fan The character of Dan and Deadwood could have easily been made an anonymous goon, but you managed to really make him memorable and a kind of complicated character who's a mix of charismatic and dangerous and a fully realized person. How much of the character was developed by you as opposed to being on the page?
1: Um, Well, when it first came about, um, I was sent the script and Doherty, there's only three or four lines in the pilot. And I said, it's the thug in the shadows. I had committed to doing Steve Earle's play in Nashville. He'd written a play, a theater play. And I had committed to being in it. And this rolled around and I read it. And I said to my agent, I said, you know, I I don't want to be the thug in the shadows for seven years. I said, Jack McCall, that's kind of showy. Because it's only four episodes and he gets killed. I said, I don't give a shit. I'd rather play that than be stuck as the thug. So I go. And I knew the casting directors. I'd worked with them before. And Libby comes out. She goes, you, you got Doherty. I said, yeah, but I want to read McCall. She goes, oh, okay. Do you, do you have both? Of, can we do both of them? I said, yeah, we can do both of them. So I go in. We do McCall. And Dave kind of looks at her. Walter Hill was there at that point. He was still involved. And she goes, oh, no, we're doing Doherty. We're doing Doherty also. So we do the Doherty scene and I can see Dave kind of perk up on the couch. So we get through it and he leans forward and goes, all right, we're going to do this again. Now I want you to think about this. And he goes through every single word. There's a specific reason why I said everything. I said it. There's a specific reason why it's phrased that way. There's subtext to all of, as he's explaining all of this. It hits me like, Oh my God, this guy doesn't write thugs and shadows. This guy brings complexity to everything. Now, I had guest starred on NYPD Blue, so I'd already had just a little snippet of, of the craziness of Milch. Um, but it was there in the room where I got excited of like, oh, my God, this. So it, David took who, as I said, he could see through you. He's, so I think a big part of Doherty was me, but filtered through Dave. You know, so it was it was a creation of both of us, as all those characters were, right? <clears throat> because again, David was able to use who you are as a person. Um, he could see the shadows, and he could see the light, and he was able to paint with both of them.
0: Wow, that's right. So I'm sure he gave you more lines and more as he, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: There were things would happen. Um, there was an ish a personal issue that another actor was having that I was privy to uh, and no one else was. And there was frustration due to some, and I just pulled Dave aside and I said, Hey, I I didn't give away any secrets, but I, I, that was the point. This was in the first season. That's the point Doherty became so loyal. So it was literally just me taking up for a fellow castmate, trying to go, you need to cut this guy some slack. And so David kind of enveloped that into Dan going on down the line, you know? Um, So yeah, he, he, he. he, EB sweaty palms. That's all Billy Sanderson because Billy would get nervous and his palms would start to sweat.
0: Wow. (laughs) How was it with Ian McShane? Did you end up becoming protective of him as a person? or What was your guys' dynamic?
1: Just pretty much ended up resulting like it was on the show. Wow. Ian and I, we kept up, we would have every, about twice a year, we would have breakfast over near his place. He lives in Venice Beach, lives there in London. Um, but we would have our Deadwood breakfasts, which he would invite. And I was inevitably there as part of every one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, our relationship really kind of unfolded like Al and Dan's. That's amazing. Um,
0: and he was sober, right? Because I read that, isn't he and Milch both? And... There was so much booze in all the scenes. I just wonder if anyone had...
1: He, ironically, um, Ian knew Lemmy Kilmister from London because they used to drink at the same pub.
2: Oh, funny.
1: Um, Ian got sober back in the 80s um, and had been sober, is sober ever since. But yes. And David, um, I think David got sober before Deadwood. You know, he got off the the drugs... But he said, I, I was going to, um, uh, um, said i uh, going to exercise. That was good. Doctor said, I need good exercise. He said, I started running and that fucking hurts when you're old and you know what takes away the hurt Vicodin. And you know what washes Vicodin down really good vodka. They go good together. So, uh, <laughs> David was then hooked on Vicodin. And, and so I think before Deadwood, David was off illicit substances, shall we say? Yeah. Um, I don't know, you know. I don't know about David's sobriety. I don't know if he was ever part of, you know, um, program or um, something of the anonymous or not. Yeah. I know Ian, but yeah,
0: yeah. I just wondered because watching the show, it's just so you guys are drinking
1: all the time. Yeah. Well, their water, their water was <laughs> yeah. bad, so they couldn't really trust water. Wow. So yeah, that was a reason. That was another reason they drank so much alcohol, is because unless you had a fresh spring. And you get a bunch of people living together like that you got a lot of sewage in your creek right. oh my gosh there's yeah. things you
0: think of i read a little bit yeah on wikipedia just about the town itself and the history of that place is incredible and did you do yeah. a lot of research before like of the town and
1: i yes i went there uh i went several times but i went there before we ever started um actually it may have been at the end of my first year john hawks had gone before we started production hmm. And then after our first year, I went, and there's a great museum there, the Adams House Museum, mm-hmm. which David had used, um, you know, with his initial research. And I went and spent a lot of time there. Jerry Bryant is historian, local historian who's passed away. He gave, you know, he, he knew every story and he took me in his golf cart to all these places up in the hills where stuff happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, and I love, visiting there. I I love going to that that place.
2: Wow. Well, you're a country boy at heart too, right? Would you say? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That's
2: cool. Were the scenes crazy? I mean, shooting at night, all that mud. Was it just dirty and icky all the time?
1: Um, it was. My wife has said this too. She says people going to a night shoot there was almost like stepping back in time. Because, you know, the lights, you can't see the hillside and the homes that were there um because it's in a residential area it's a 10 acre lot and it's been developed the rest of the the valley so you're driving through you know suburbia big houses and horses um and then you're at melody ranch but at nighttime when we just had you know our little segment lit um it was it was a, a magical time it was a magical experience
2: that's cool and crazy hours were you there around the clock oh, yeah. or yeah yeah, yeah. I could imagine. Did you just sleep there a lot? I would
0: think so.
1: I never spent the night there. Mm. Um, it was for me driving home is about a 20 minute drive. Yeah. Uh, to so I never there were some people that did. Yeah. Uh, who lived like on the west side or something but I just drive home.
0: I worked on the Westworld pilot and we were right by the set there and they used some of the set and in- All anybody talked about was Deadwood at Melody Ranch the whole time. Yep. (laughs) Now, I want to, can I talk about Bloodworth? How do you, that, we watched it. It's amazing. It seemed like it was hard. Do you want to talk about kind of the inception of the idea and how do you get funding to do it?
1: Yeah, well, I, we were doing Deadwood. My wife had interviewed William Gay for a project she was working on. And that's how I first got to know William. And he's the author uh, of the book? Yeah, he wrote the book, Provinces of Night. And, and um, I said, that, that was my catcher in the rye. You know, when I read Catcher in the Rye, I was 20. You know, I wasn't a teenager anymore. But Holden Caulfield just seemed like an asshole to me. You know, <laughs> he was. I didn't. Yeah, he was just what a of Serial total...
0: killers thought so too, who ended yeah. up following him.
1: Yeah. Um, and when I read Provinces of Night, like, oh my God, I found my Holden Caulfield. It's Fleming Bloodworth. You know, the the kid that's the main character in that book, which is really a loosely autobiographical story of William himself. So Shane Taylor, I had seen his first movie. He's from Kentucky and and I had met him. Super nice guy, he worked for ESPN for years. He'd always wanted to be a film director and he'd made a little homemade movie. And I really liked him and I kept putting it off. It shot in my hometown in Murray, Kentucky. Oh because it's set in the illegal cockfighting world and there was a huge cockfighting arena, illegal as hell, but there was a breeding farm and an arena that was in my County. He found it and got access to it. Hence they shot there. And people at home said, Hey man, they shot a movie here last summer. Oh "Oh, no, They shot a movie. There's people here from Hollywood. They shot a movie here. (laughs) I never heard of it. So I ended up meeting Shane. um, Super nice guy. And he, he was inviting me to watch the movie. And I kept putting it off because I'm like, it's going to suck. He's only got three professional actors. It's mostly local people. It's get, uh, long story short, I couldn't avoid it. I finally saw it. It was phenomenal for a little no-budget film. So I approached him. I said, hey, man, I love this book. Take a look at So he was still working for ESPN there, and he was flying to New York. And he had read about half of it by the time he landed. He called me as soon as they landed. He goes, we've got to get the rights. I want to do this. So it took us, um, that would have been 03. We were set up to go in 06. We'd gotten funding. And we were in pre-production. In a 12-hour span of time, Deadwood was canceled, and we lost the money of the film. So I go in 12 hours from... I'm a writer, supporting actor on best show on television. I've got my first movie in pre-production at a $5 million budget. I'm riding high. 12 hours later, nothing. Um, So we had to recoup. It took us three more years to kind of get all the horses back in the barn. Um, We had a third partner who, let's, let's put it delicately and say he was a lot of big talk. He was all hat, no cattle. And we got a really bad feeling about, so um, we parted companies with him. Um, We had to come up with long, long and sordid story. I got far more involved in financing than I ever thought I wanted to be. Um, I had to, I had to work for a dollar. I had to work for nothing. I had to reinvest all the monies. We were paying each We were paying ourselves minimum union minimums, paying ourselves $1 as producers. We were forced by our major investor to reinvest all funds. So I worked for 14 months for nothing. Wow. Um, but we got to make the film that we wanted to make. We sold it. We got distribution on it. Um, I've told Shane, we discussed this several times. If, if I had, because uh, that, was, that was tough, man, because I was broke. And at the end of the shoot, I got walking pneumonia from so much fucking worry. And I wasn't sleeping. And, uh, and then that, that role was screwed with my head anyway. And I didn't write that to be me. I offered it to John C. Riley. I went to school with John oh. and I offered Riley. Uh, Cause I knew we had Christofferson and I knew Riley was a big music nut. So Riley at the last minute turned it down. So I was kind of the guy on the bench. I told Shane, I'll, I'll play whatever. If we have to, you know, um, but having Val, having Val Kilmer on board, justified our budget so
0: can you talk so i don't for the people who've not heard about this movie it's called bloodworth and your main actors you were one of them you had val kilmer chris
2: christopherson
1: dwight yoakam hillary uh, duff conroy and hillary duff and reese thompson
2: and also the woman from six feet under i can't recall france conroy okay yeah she was great
1: so who he- is phenomenal so and great. she is a Phenomenal human being.
0: This movie was amazing. Can you give us just a little little premise of it?
1: Uh, it's the story of this teenager from a very poor rural Appalachian area um, whose father has abandoned them. His mother left him, and then his father's left. And it's family dysfunction. Uh, his father and his two uncles have been screwed up their entire lives because their dad abandoned them when they were little boys. So they grew up without a father, neither, none of them knowing how to be a father. And ironically, you know, Dwight Yoakam's character has this grandson. So the, grand, the grandfather shows back up in their lives. That's Chris Christofferson. What it is is he's dying, and he has to come to terms with his life. Now, there's a great dark secret in his past that I had to change somewhat from the book because the book was a definite period piece in the 1940s. Uh, and it was an attempted murder of a law officer, but he got away with it, and he ran away. And I'm thinking, because we, we wanted a timeless feeling, but it's still somewhat contemporary. Mm-hmm. So I thought there's no way he's going to get away with it unless he murdered the guy. If he killed him and did away with the body, and nobody ever found the body, and it was a cop that deserved killing, that everybody hated, so that I changed that element. So that was it. He had c- committed this murder, and he told himself, I'm, I'm leaving my family behind because the wrath of the devil's coming down on us, and I'm protecting them. Right. But as, as the one son said to him, yeah, you left us standing on that porch, but you took your goddamn guitar. Yeah. Um, so he spent his life going around chasing a song, staying drunk, chasing women, playing music. And um, so he's faced with his own death, and he shows back up. So this grandson has this grandfather suddenly back in his life that he's never known. And he's never had a real father figure. And suddenly he has one. And then tragedy ensues.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: because the sons all hate their father. Mm-hmm. And um, um, it just leads to a a, a a denouement that's a great tragedy. But But it's actually uplifting if you get to the end with... You know the lessons that the kid learned.
2: It was it was great. It had just the right amount of, of mystery and violence and sex and family and, and I, then uh, and romance too. It, it was great. I love yeah. it. Yeah,
0: and the like, in the part which I want to tie back to you. You know we've all got father issues, or most of us, or a lot of us, and they all did in your move. But how, did you pull from your own story or? Um. Your your character was probably the hardest to play. I would imagine you were
1: angry. There was a great line in the novel that described that character to a T. I couldn't really use it in the script. There was no place. It was so poetic it wouldn't have felt right tripping off the tongue of of one of the characters. But William wrote, um, "Childhood polio left him with a gnarled left leg, but further twisted inside." further twisted in ways invisible to the human eye childhood polio had left him with a gnarled left leg but in further twisted in ways not visible to the human eye so that was it so he had created his own belief system of fundamentalist religion and voodoo and and he thought he controlled it was insane Mm -hmm. um and there there were snippets of that i forget we we did a re-edit on it um And I think you do briefly get this of him sitting there at the grave of his father where he's just completely lost sense of, of reality. Um, But yeah, he was on the slippery edge and he was a vile, he was a mean fucker too.
2: Yeah. But then almost righteous because he was left to take care of his mom. So he had that side of him too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, but that sense of the chip on his shoulder because his nephew gets published that his, he wants to be a writer. He, it, he knows writing is the only way he can deal with this. All of these ghosts that are in his head and around him, if he can write about them, if he can get them on a page that controls them. And Brady, the character I played was threatened by that, you know, and he was, he was somebody cause he holds up that magazine. When he finds out the magazine, the kid's been published in and young voices of the South, this you, this you, and the kid's proud, you know, and then he rips the magazine up right in front of him. So it's that, you know, the, there was this getting above my raisins, you know, was the mentality of of folks back home, getting above your raising, thinking you're better than where you came from. Mm-hmm. And you know, um I my dad and I did not have that kind of a contentious relationship. It's a complicate it was a complicated relationship, but it wasn't like that. Um I think I mostly drew as I drew on most of my grandfather, the, the eyeball story, him and my uncle's relationship, because that's exactly what it was. They were so much alike. You know, I, I witnessed them try to beat each other to death once as a kid. Um, that stays so with you. A lot, a lot of violence. Yeah. You
0: know? Wow. How, did they support you, your family as an actor? Or how did they feel about that?
1: Yeah. Um, it was My grandfather had, he was still alive when I got accepted into the theater, the graduate program at theater school. And I decided I'm moving to Chicago. I'm going to pursue this. Um, at first, my you know, because getting in was a big deal because there were hundreds of people that auditioned and only a handful got in. But then my old man was like, oh, hell, you're going to be going to college till you're 40. You're going to be one of them, you know. So it wasn't all about it. And I had driven the summer of 1985, the summer before, I had driven every, for six weeks, I drove to Chicago every weekend to take classes at the Second City with Don DePolo. That was an 840 mile trip every oh. weekend. Mm. That's how committed I was. I meant it. Uh, so, it, but it was my grandfather who had buried my grandmother and was just waiting around to dig his own hole. Wow. I mean, literally, he said, we should have dug two holes, son. But he was sitting there in the farmhouse. And I went over and I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to do this. I've been, I said, don't you have two cents to put in like everybody does? And he said, well, ever since you was a little bitty boy, you well, everything you said that you was going to do, you did it. So I ain't got no doubt you'll do this too. So that was kind of the final blessing. Like that was the final string to cut that, like, all right, I can let this go and move forward. And then he died um he died that january wow um so yeah that so i drew on that completely because him and my uncle were they were too much alike wow um,
2: and you were the you were the boy that broke the curse a little bit you got out of there and i was fl- yeah yeah you were that's what i was thinking You're yeah connected you were the kid yeah. that did yeah. what you said you were gonna do i love that that's cool and
1: my uncle was quite a bit of him was was the val kilmer character In that movie. Wow. He he didn't impregnate my teenage girlfriend. Well, I was going to say, I uh,
2: hope that twist wasn't true. That was crazy. (laughs) By the way, Val Kilmer,
0: how is it? I've met, hung out with him a couple of times and worked with him. And interesting guy, right? (laughs) That's,
1: That's a nice way of putting it. Yes. He is interesting. I will say this. He is an immensely talented actor. Yes. He is a very complicated man. Um, and yeah, let's just leave it at that. Okay. And Chris Christopherson. Oh my God. That's yeah. That's a guy, uh, my mother and my sister, just the, they went to see, um, a star is born multiple times in 1976. (laughs)
2: <laughs> you know. I was a little girl
0: we uh, might have been conceived to a stars. Born. yeah we had yeah. the
2: record and we just played it on Ugh. loop and my mom so our mom Love would him. sing all Barbara's yep. parts and we why, grew up listening to that
1: lord. my mother went through some bad periods in in her life and there was a period where why me lord was on constantly it was like a life preserver for her you know I was a little kid I couldn't quite wrap my head around why mom did not get out of bed you know the cover's over her head all weekend.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and so, you know, so that song meant that to my mom. You know, my sister's burgeoning teenage sexuality was drawn to yeah. it. Yeah. When, when we were doing the movie, my wife said, because we were about to close the deal, and there was a magazine, uh, No Depression magazine. He was on the cover. And Carrie, we didn't know him at that point. I had done a Western with him, so I had met him, but I didn't know him, know him. My wife walks by and she looks at it at the photo and he was, Chris was 72 when that photo was taken. And she said, you know what? I don't really know what it is, but whatever it is, that man got a double scoop. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. So,
0: well, he's got, he's a, sorry.
1: No, well, yeah. He's a Rhodes scholar, a golden gloves, boxer, a a war veteran. um, And yes, well, here's a story. And actually, she kind of looks like you as I think about it, this, this girl in this story. We were hanging out at a place called the Blue Post in Wilmington. We just, we hit it off. And we hung out every night in my apartment. We would play songs to each other and smoke a joint and tell stories. And um, so I got all of the stories. And wow. I sang him songs that I had written. And he would sing me these fucking songs that you knew and tell me where it came from, how he wrote it, whatnot. But one night we're at the Blue Post and they had a great jukebox. And Reese Thompson, the kid that played his grandson, had never heard of Chris Christopherson until we started doing the movie. And then he just absolutely idolized him. So I go to the jukebox and I play uh, pill, Leopard Pillbox Hat by Dylan. And it comes on. We're sitting in the corner and Chris goes, I remember the day Bob recorded this. So what? He was the janitor at Columbia Studios when Bob recorded. Hmm. He said there was a buyout. No musicians or songwriters were allowed in the building. He said there was one, because he was emptying the ashtrays and sweeping the floor. It was me. He said so I would sit there and I would watch through the window. I'd watch Bob work. He goes he would sit underneath this grand piano and he would write in a notebook. And every now and then he'd reach up over him and he'd pick out some notes. And then he'd go back to his notebook and he goes I remember the day he wrote that one because the band came in at about five o'clock as they were. I, I, I listened to him cut it. I thought ooh that's a special one. So it's the song that's playing as he's telling us the story. Oh, cool! Well, this this girl go, went to UNC Wilmington College. Girl, gorgeous, voluptuous. She walks up. She goes, Exc- "Excuse me, I, I don't could 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 I get your autograph?" Chris's like, "Yeah, yeah, sure, sure." So he signs Bart napkin or something. And this is in the day of flip phone phones, cameras. And she goes, "Could could we get could we get a, a photo? Can I get a photo?" Yeah. So she hands her photo out to somebody of hers and she's all snuggling. I said, she was holding him close. Like she was afraid he might catch a cold. (laughs) And she said, she goes, I just, I just adore you. I love you. The blade movies are my favorite movies ever. And Chris goes, Oh, thank you. She goes, no, I, I love them. I love those movies. And Reese is sitting there. Reese goes, well, you should go play them on the jukebox. And she went, what? She goes, go play him on a the jukebox. They got his greatest hits over there. She went, What? You're a singer?
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so he spans. Like, how many different generations know about this guy?
1: Well, well I said, I, I, it was my daughter had gotten on it because my daughter was a little girl when we did it. Um, She would have, she was nine when we shot. And, or wait, no, she was 11. It was when she was in high school years later. I forget what I was watching. It was one of the early films, and she went, Oh no no! It was a photo. It was a photograph that she saw, and it was on my iPad. She went, "Ooh, who's that?" I said, "That's Chris." He went, "That is Chris Christopherson." I said, "Yeah." She went, "Oh my god!" <laughs> but you know, three generations of my family—well, four, counting my sister, my mother, my sister, my wife, and my daughter—all. Uh. Brushes on chris yeah so it's, whatever it is, the is man's got a double scoop
0: it. yeah true. <laughs> exactly
2: it lasts through the ages he makes you doubt things that's true okay and so
0: i remember looking that you you got t-bone burnett to do music producing on it yeah. or supervising
1: we did um that's huge t-bone, yeah well you know we couldn't have gotten him three months later it would have been impossible but uh, uh steven um
0: can we, can we say also he did Oh Brother Where Art Thou? We could leave yeah. it at that, but he's a big deal.
1: Well, Crazy Heart happened while we were in post-production. Well, there's a story in and of that. Uh, and that's where T-Bone's rate went through the roof. But yeah. what happened is Steve Bruton, who Crazy Heart was loosely based on Bruton, and Bruton was the advisor for that film. He was Chris's lead guitar player through the whole time, and they were best friends. Well, Bruton was dying. He had terminal cancer. T-Bone had brought him out here. He was staying at T-Bone's place, his studio house, and he was going through alternative therapies, and he died there in T-Bone's place. But we got a phone call. Now, Travis Nicholson, who was working on the film with us, behind the scenes, his dad, Gary Nicholson, started out in Texas with Christofferson with T-Bone. He's a musician-songwriter. So Travis has known Chris since the day he was born. So we all kind of had everything's connected, Right. Well, Chris got the phone call that Bruton, it's, it's happening. He's, he's leaving us. So we arranged the schedule, and, and Travis got it because his dad knew also because he was tight with Bruton. So we changed our schedule to allow Chris to get back here to L.A. to say goodbye. So Chris flies back in. He spent the afternoon with Steven um, at T-Bone's house, And then Steven died the next morning. There's a story in that, that T-Bone tells. He has a meditation bell. It's like this, this Asian, I forget what country it was from, but it's, it's got this pure tone. It's, it's an antique. I don't know how many, but he brought it out and showed it to me. No, because how we got him is, so Travis has already tried to get T-Bone to do our music. Chris comes back to say goodbye to Bruton. He says, oh, I'm doing this movie about a musician. We're shooting in in North Carolina. So T-Bone is getting it from every avenue that this project keeps coming across. And then Chris did something. He had never written original music before. He wrote that original song for our movie. So we needed somebody to cut it. So T-Bone agreed. But when we were over there at the place, we were in the place where Stephen died. The bedroom is right across the hall. He brought this meditation bell out. And he said this, Stephen, was like four in the morning or five, somewhere in there, around around the time the sun started to come up. Stephen's girlfriend was with him and she heard the bell toll. And said, I think she said there were three tones and she thought T-Bone was there. Like, oh, he's here awfully early. And then she rolls over and Stephen's dead. So as T-Bone said, this bell rang its tone the moment that Steven left this room. Wow. Um, so all that stuff kind of tied into, you know, bringing us all together at the same place at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I was there in Village Recorders, you know, in the studio with T-Bone and Chris and the, we hired a band. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah. And then T-Bone, as we were mixing, we had cut and we were mixing. And we, when he got the phone call about Crazy Heart, uh, the studio was moving up the Crazy Heart release date because he stepped out. He goes, "I got to take this guy."s He steps out, then he steps back in and goes, "We got to stop. I got to finish Crazy Heart." So, um, kind of so we got deal. delayed. Yeah, uh, we got delayed for about three weeks so that he could finish that movie. Uh, and then that movie, his, you know, his rate skyrocketed. And um, God,
0: you're but so yeah. Lucky
1: but having him and Chris it was all just all the right spirits were supposed to all come together at that time you know that's awesome so congratulations
0: so it, for finishing that it is so hard to get a film up and running and made and produced and distributed congratulations it's huge thank you
2: yeah and people can find it streaming now right i mean we found it on amazon apple tv I think. apple
1: tv okay Yeah, I'm not sure that it's on any streaming service free at the moment. Yeah, but I do know it's out there that you can buy. It's worth it. Yeah, it's it's worth it. You can stream
0: it for four dollars. It's not a big if you don't want to buy it.
2: Yeah, I love so everybody
0: watch that. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, I love the storytelling there, and I realize now this late in my life, I've never been a big country music fan, but. Just doing this research with you and hearing about—I can't believe that we were born in the same family. We had a—we lived on a ranch.
0: We were born on a ranch in Northern California. We grew up on Dolly Parton. I know my mom's. What happened? Our mom's
2: from Texas. (laughs) Um, Our dad—they both grew up in folk music in the '60s, so it was very—you know—we get the guitar and play by the fire and harmonica and the whole thing. I don't know. I just—I found rock. I guess I I grew up liking that a little bit more.
1: It's all good. Yeah, I was my my mom is still a huge music fan. My first concert, I was the Callaway County Fairgrounds, 1968, right before I turned four years old, was the Porter Wagner show with Dolly Parton and Speck Rhodes. Wow. Nice. Dolly had just started on Porter's show and I was a little bitty boy. I was four years old. And it was the first time I'd seen in person people that I saw on TV. So my four-year-old brain kind of put together like, Oh my God, they're real, they're yeah. real people. Um, <laughs> But it was me when puberty hit, and I discovered Kiss was my gateway drug into punk and heavy metal uh, because I love Kiss. Oh yeah! Um, And so it wasn't until I moved to Chicago and I was learning to play, and WXRT, the cool rock station, played Steve Earle, Copperhead Road, and the hair on the back of my neck stood up. That's like, oh my God! This is this is a country song, but this is kind of metal. This is dark, and and I was learning to play. And then my appreciation for Hank Williams. The first song I ever remember, I mean, I was a toddler toddler, was I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Aww. Because both my grandmothers had Hank Williams records. They had different covers, but they were, you know, they were collections. And both of them had that song on it. And I can remember as a little boy hearing that and thinking that man sounds so sad. Um, you can so- see
0: that's a testimony to your
2: emotional depth. At that age too, yeah. yeah. Um, and Dolly Parton um, talks about that. Um, they have the podcast Dolly Parton's America, and I think it's like you know maybe ten parts or something. So it's something you can kind of binge and listen to. But she talks about these are stories from her people, you know, in the mountains, and and just the storytelling is so beautiful. And now I'm I'm I need to get into this. I'm feeling well, my country dig, roots. <laughs> there's
1: a there's a lot of there's a lot of pat you know there's a lot of slick stuff and and you know some of dolly's stuff is is vegas dolly right but you listen she did three bluegrass records about 15 20 years ago Uh, the first one's called the grass is blue Mm -hmm. and and she does bluegrass versions of like stairway to heaven you know but there's some songs there's a song called down from dover i dare you listen to that song and not get emotionally wrenched wow. mm-hmm. down from dover by dolly Parton, mm-hmm. and then again you find those nuggets look for the you know um towns van zant who was a great writer some of the records i don't care for i don't care for the production but the songs are, are dylan level good mm. steve Earle is my favorite yeah. ever um you know the so yeah, if you dig, there's some great, great music. I mean, it, it grew out of folk music and country music are first cousins. Yeah, um, there, there are a lot of similarities in that.
0: And rock, you know, taking the old Delta blues and then the Led Zeppelins, and it all ties together. All rock,
1: <laughs> country is just blues. It's it's American blues music combined with Scots Irish folk music, and hence you got country music. Yeah, yeah. 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 Now it's
0: speaking a- of all of this your band are you guys playing what's going what's the name of your band and what's happening with that
1: we are sacred cowboys um we uh we we were a band we started back in the aughts kind of evolved out of deadwood um i met this musician who was working in the background who was a musician musician who played pedal steel mike johnstone and season two of deadwood um i'd been playing with some guys we got together it was a dad band of sorts it started my 40th birthday party we'd rented the cat club so we decided we're gonna play so we put a 45 minute set together of of cover songs and like there was something like oh there's something here like we and the the guys were musicians musicians far more than me so we would kind of kept it up um but it was all rock music and mostly hard rock and then we had the house of blues for the season two rap of Deadwood. And the producer said, Hey, if you want to bring your band, if you guys want to play some, well, I met Mike and I knew he played pedal steel and I wanted to do some country music because it's apropos for Deadwood. So I went to Mike and then I went and got Ralph Stevens, who used to be my neighbor, who used to play piano for Jackie DeShannon. Wow. Um, Mike and, and Ralph are both a generation older than me. That's kind of how it evolved and we had that group of personalities in a room. There was that spark. I felt it from the moment we started playing. There's and not everybody there. It's not like everybody's best friends in that band, but that, that combination of sensibilities. So we became a band band. We played quite a bit. Wow. And then we ended up, I, I had a problem when Deadwood stopped it was always promoted like the guy from Deadwood. Yeah. So people would come out, you know, sure. like, it's country rock music with the guy from Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Well, after the show was over, I felt like a loser. Like I, mm-hmm. I believed in the band, like whatever brings people through the door, I know this band yeah. is going to knock them on their socks, but to go out and do promotion and shit, like the show's over.
0: Yeah.
1: So I was busy. We got booked to do Stagecoach. word kind of spread. And I love telling this story. The band that opened it, they played before us on the Palomino stage. I don't know whatever happened to those guys, the Zac Brown band. Oh, no. We we played the Palomino stage at three on that Saturday at Stagecoach 09. The response was phenomenal. And we were at the point of like, okay, we got to do this, do this, which means get in the white van and tour I could not afford to do it. We were in production on, on Bloodworth at that point, And I had to give myself the Bloodworth. So I kind of mothballed the band, like right when the momentum is building up for us mm. and I couldn't do it. So I missed it like crazy. And we decided when the Deadwood movie came around, we're like, fuck it, let's all get back together and nice. see if we can still play. So we, we have tracked new music. We have two videos that I am over the moon about how good they were. I conceived them, and then I brought in these artists to do them. And then Pete, Peter is a no Oscar-nominated uh, filmmaker, my lead guitar player. Wow! He he made these things. I cannot wait to share them. We're just trying to find the right time and the right way we can distribute them. Um, so we've had a couple of songs used stuff's been used in films. Say, well, we use one, the closing credit song of Bloodworth wow. is Sacred Cowboys.
2: Okay. Tell wow. me your
1: secret. We cut that with, with T. well, T-Bone remixed the version that I'd already cut. But yeah, that closing credit song in Bloodworth is Sacred Cowboys.
2: That's, so mm-hmm. all the songs are great. Was on that, that also you guys with that two-part harmony, just the acapella, the two guys singing in Bloodworth?
1: Oh, that is um, uh, Tim O'Brien and uh, Daryl, um, um, escapes my um, no, it's not us. Yeah, I that was
2: that did. was tingles too. That was
0: an amazing song, and gasoline matches. I sang that I sing sometimes and was with the bands, and we did a cover of that too.
1: Beautiful song. Well, I knew with that, we, we couldn't do the storm, like, we could not afford to do a tornado in the book. It's a blizzard. Well, we knew that's out, we can't do that. Yeah, so it's gonna be a tornado. So we set up, you know, that it's blowing in. Like there's a hurricane that's sending weather up that's kind of seeded earlier in the movie that bad weather's coming their way. Wow. Uh, but we couldn't afford to to really properly film the damage of of it hitting the house. So I'm the one that came. I said, how about if we just use music? If we just use this heart of, of, of gold, um, what's it, what, it's a Hank Williams recorded it. Wow. It's a Hank Williams song. Um, Daryl Scott and Tim O'Brien. And and I just yeah it's that's one of my favorite moments in the movie because you just have these two incredible voices um, and then you know um, yeah thank yeah. You, but thank you for noticing that makes me happy that you picked up on it like that
2: it was gorgeous yeah so much so much art in that too and I was gonna say this sounds kind of kooky but going back to Deadwood and your scene after the fight and sitting there not able to talk and wondering if you're okay it did have this kind of Rodan thinker sculpture, mm-hmm. kind of yeah. just the artistry. You you pull it off really well. So good well, job. Well, thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, well, I, I would like to say that that was the reason I did it. It was more like I'm trying to hide my balls from a kid.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he had a, a big forward thinker. lean, a big forward lean. It's <laughs> yeah. so profound. Now, what does your wife think of any love scenes and stuff like that? I'm always so curious about this with acting.
1: I mean, she's okay with it. We, we She never had a problem. There was one movie I did that there was an actress I was working with that we had intimate scenes, and there was kind of a spark. Like, if we were both single people, we probably would have dated. My wife could smell that on me a mile away. That's it? Um, Uh-oh. Yeah. Um, and that's been the only time where she was like, hmm. But all the other times, you know, Um, there was one that it is a great little small film that the lead guitar player in my band made it called Dunsmore Mm. Um, a little low budget film. And, and I had, you know, multiple full on nude sex scenes in it. And the, the actress that was playing the younger actress who was in it, we were, we hit it off and my wife was friends with her. And I really, cause she's young and pretty and, you know, and Carrie had no, you know, again, she she can smell a boner on me from a mile away. So uh, there's no use to me ever even trying to pretend to hide it. So, can, can we quote you, you know, on
2: that? Can that be the lead yes, of our can uh, episode? can smell a boner a mile. Oh, I'm writing it down.
0: Oh, oh my goodness. The okay, one so, on me.
1: Yeah, on yeah. Me, on me.
2: <laughs> Okay.
0: Only his. It's specific.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um. um do you want to
0: end with something ridiculous and do the six degrees to oh, Kevin yeah. Bacon to... We came up with a game idea.
1: All right. So Now,
0: she has always been a super fan of Chris.
2: I love Coldplay. This is like talking about love stories and heartbreak and all this, right? I went through a big breakup with my husband. Sounds like you guys, with Carrie, that you had a breakup and get back together, and you finally ended up together. Well, that was us, and Coldplay got me through, so I transferred all those love feelings on to Chris Martin, because he and my husband look a lot alike. It's strange. Talk about some Freudian stuff. But, so I still love Chris Martin. Can't help myself. He married Gwyneth Paltrow. So I say, instead of the Kevin Bacon game, let's play with W. Earl Brown. We'll play the the Gwyneth Paltrow game or whatever you want to call it. So can you connect yourself through your movies, your works, back to, well, Chris Martin or Gwyneth Paltrow?
1: Well, I saw also in your email, didn't I see Adam Sandler on there too? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was my guy. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was your guy? Well, yeah. I can connect all of them together. No. Oh. Well, I can connect to Gwyneth. Um, um, what was her cousin? I, used to, I was in an, a checkoff class out here in, in LA in 1994 with her first cousin. And then we used to go out to Bruce and um, Bruce Paltrow was her father. And was Blythe your mom as well? Yeah, yes, I think, I think so, that's, that's um, okay. her, her parents' house. Gwyneth still lived there. Mm-hmm. We had class at their house a few times. I never met Gwen. Um, And then her her cousin she was in a she was in a few movies and she had a TV show, name escapes me at the moment. But the Adam Sandler and Chris Martin, when uh, Judd Apatow decided he was going to get back into doing stand up, he did shows over um, at the... Um, Oh, that theater down by the the um, the mall over in Beverly Hills. We
2: were there. Um, flappers, no.
1: Uh, oh, no, no, no. Beverly Hills. It's a theater. Yeah, it's in Beverly Hills. Oh. what's the big indoor mall in Beverly? Beverly Center. Oh, uh, there's a theater just like a block away. Oh God, what's the name of it? Oh, on West Third, Third Largo. In Beverly. Oh, Largo. Oh, Largo, Largo at the okay. Cornet. Yeah. Largo Cornet. Yes. So I went to see one of Judge. I, I want to say it was the second night. Wow. He's
2: good. I saw him at Caboo, and it was a great. Well, well he
1: had, set. he had special guests that were going to pop in, and and one of them was Adam Adam Sandler. Adam was there, so he brought Adam out to do a bit. And then he goes, "I got a buddy out. To, I got a buddy in the audience. Hey, Chris, come up here. Sitting right in front of me was Chris Martin." Ah. So, he brings Chris up on stage to improvise a song and you could tell this wasn't a plant. Chris did not want to get up and Jonah, come on, come on up here. Come on. And so he gets at the piano and he improvises a song about how uncomfortable he is. (laughs) And he makes the audience laugh and Apatel, he finishes and Apatel walks out and he goes, all right, you look like Chris Martin. You play music like Chris Martin. I don't look like that. I can't play music like that. But you're funny. You're funny. You got the audience laughing. I'm the fucking funny guy. Get off my <laughs> <laughs> He's
2: good. He's so, so cute. The night yeah. at
1: the Largo that included Adam Sandler and Chris Martin that's so amazing You did
2: it embargo. you did it Very you good. It. and you, comedy bringing it all back around yes. I love it yes and do we have any more questions we have that that we more done? questions that I didn't I mean I feel like we we, we asked did, a lot oh I much, wanted to I know about your fight scene with Joaquin Phoenix oh that um,
0: was crazy too this and P.T. Is the, Anderson because he's a. am a fan of his and if you had a chance well, to meet
1: him well I, I was a fan also I mean again because I knew Riley so I've seen since Hard Hate 'Cause Riley was in it, and those two guys were best buds. And I actually met Paul. This would Tom Petty and Steve Earle, playing at the Santa Barbara Bowl. And John and and Paul were there. And they were sitting right behind us. John had introduced introduced me to him, but I, I mean I just knew him. This was after Boogie Nights. So with with The Master, I knew that movie was being made because they were so super secretive about it, because they were afraid of Scientology mutzing with them, you know. So I got a call from my agent. And he said, are you comfortable fighting? I said, yeah. He goes like, but like really fighting, not stage fighting. Oh yeah. Said, yeah, you guys
0: were, it looks so There was yeah. no no stunts, right?
1: No, no, it was just us. And it's all in one take. Yeah. Um, I said, yeah, I'm fine. I said, I actually like hitting people. I don't like getting hit that much, but I'm not real quick. So, you know, it's a trade-off. So I usually avoid it, but yeah, I'm fine fighting. And he said, well, there's this Paul Thomas Anderson film, Cassandra has called, and they want somebody uh, that can go toe-to-toe with Joaquin Phoenix because Joaquin doesn't do – he can't do stunts. He gets so into the moment. So they, they need an actor who – and I said, yeah, sure. So I expected Paul, because he's so cinematic, I expected him to be one of these guys that's got every shot and every cut in his head. if You know, I figured storyboarded because there are guys that are so visual. They know every place they want to take it. So I I went, I, I met him um, the day before we shot when I had makeup confab and stuff. And they I went and said, hello, we were in the department store. They were shooting at that location. Super nice guy and and introduced me to Joaquin. And Joaquin didn't, you know, he called himself Joaquin. He wasn't one of these, you got to call me by my character. Uh, Val Kilmer, character
0: name. Jim Morrison, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, he wasn't like that. But he stayed in that headspace the whole time, and, and introduced you He goes, "Yeah, thanks for coming out. Now, I, did they did they tell you um, when we do this? When we do this, are you comfortable? If you if if you just if you if you hit me, are you are you comfortable if you hit me?" said, uh, "Yeah, yeah, I was told. Yeah, sure." I was like, "Okay, yeah, cause yeah, so just yeah, yeah." He starts to walk away. and turns. what goes, what, what, "What about what about what about what if I hit you?" if I hit you, or are you okay if I hit you? I said, yeah, man, we'll just work it out. Whatever. Sure. So the next day we get there and Paul, we're we're in costume and we were rehearsing and the whole crew's there. And it was a scene. It was like a two pages of dialogue. Um, I know going back to Deadwood, like the post fight scene, it was dialogue. And it, I was a businessman. I was there to get my portrait taken, but I thought maybe I could get a print for my wife. She'd probably like that. So I was supposed to be this jovial, you know, and so we're reading it and Paul walks up and he goes, this is, this is not good. This is really not good, which is the first fucking thing you want to hear your director say. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: And he says, this is, it's the writing. It's my, it's the writing. I'm too on the nose. It's too obvious. Can you improvise to me? And I said, yeah. Cause are you fine with him? I said, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, okay, close the set. Everybody off, everybody off, close it out. So set's clear. All right, let's, let's just, let's see what happens. Let's see. So we start kind of blocking through it and we lead up and, and the first time he grabs me by the throat and, and I punch him. Um, and, you know, but I knew, like, I can't fully hit him because I'll knock his ass out because I got a clean shot right to the side of the head. Um, so I was trying to, like, loosen the punch. Well, we went through it a few times that we would get to that crescendo. And and I noticed Paul, like, calling people over, department heads. And at one point he goes, um, look, we're just – I'm going to – turn the camera on. Turn the t- – just turn it on. We'll tail Slate. Turn it on. Okay, we're just going to – let's just do one. Let's, whoop, let's just do one. So he backs off. We did it six times, six takes. There's no cuts. It is. It's that It stays on Joaquin. There's a lot of headspace in there in the frame. You don't see me at first. You hear me, but you don't see me, which brings this tension. you know. And you have him on this side of the frame, butts in with the camera. And then as he moves over toward me, the camera pans back or pulls back some and trucks with him. And then you got a two shot. Most of that interaction happens with a two shot and then I knock the shit out of him. He and I shove him out of frame. So you get the empty frame and then Paul moves back and then we both enter and then, you know. Didn't no you throw cuts. a chair someone threw a chair at one point too? I threw it, yeah. Yeah. And that take I flipped the he pulled there's a love seat um and I flip it as he's throwing glass at me. But yeah. we had breakaway glass. We knew we had that. That was available to us. God. Um And so every single review picked out that scene, talking about the tension of the scene. And I went back to it time and again of like how Paul and his DP got that with, they got it with their framing, you know, they got it with their sound mix, you know, but he trusted, he knew that he had it in one take. That's crazy. And he knew that he didn't need cutaways. Um, And it was kind of cool
2: when, when- Did they dolly it? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know all the terminology because I'm yeah. not in the biz, but they dollied it. And then you lose Joaquin behind that column and then he comes out, which was yep. so realistic. It was just like you knew it was a real scene. Yep. It, it it was great.
1: Yes, it was. It was on a dolly. Um So um, I want to say it was it. I want to say it was tracked that, that we had track. Um, But yeah, it did dolly. It moved over when when he walked yeah. over. It followed, he panned back a little bit to open the frame up and he moved with him, which sets us in a two-shot. Mm-hmm. And then the fight starts happening and then the frame just centers us. It moves back over and centers us as I flip the couch over and I'm chasing him and he's throwing containers at me. Wow. Um, and then as he starts, the, the camera then follows him past that post and then he walks out of frame.
0: By the way, that's um, another... Uh- Sorry, I got excited though with your no. six degrees with Adam Sandler. You got P.T. Anderson and Punch Drunk Love right there. Oh
1: yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. There you
0: go. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that was an amazing scene. That was hugely stand out in that film.
1: Yeah, and and again, I I've watched it countless. I mean, Paul may have conceived of it as a one. He never ever said that, and he wasn't there setting up. You know, multiple shots. He just trusted the frame. And he was able to, use, so much of it is is the space and stuff that he allows in the frame that get, that builds up that sense of tension. I mean, the acting was there, there that was there, but we weren't the only things that made it what, work. What
0: building was it? Was it downtown LA?
1: Downtown, it was an old abandoned apartment store mm-hmm. that the first floor was now like a sandwich shop or whatnot. The second floor was still there, just abandoned. Crazy. They just had to it, you know? Um, So I'm not sure what it was like a make. It was some brand company that knew, you know, what it had once been. But yeah, it was downtown L.A.
0: Wow. My friend worked on Punch Drunk Love. He worked on that and he said that P.T. Anderson would show up and sometimes just like that fish tank is amazing. And they would just throw away the script and somehow the story would get created around something in the moment. So I wonder if he was a bit like that, which is so cool with these big budget films that you would just...
1: I've loved, I've, I mean, I've loved everything. I did not care for the, um, based on that book. No, the one based on the book. Um,
0: he had, let's see, Boogie Nights.
1: Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice. Oh,
0: yeah, that wasn't my favorite either.
1: I, did, I didn't care.
0: Yeah. I did
1: like the, one of the best sex scenes ever filmed. All you see is her face.
2: It's he a long sec- oh.
1: It's a great for, you don't see anything, Really? Yeah. Um, But it works. That, that, that was the only part of the film I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't care much for the rest of it. Yeah. But I just rewatched Magnolia and um, so Boogie good. Nights. Too long since since quarantines happened.
2: Brilliant. Yeah, lends a lot of time for that. That's good. Alfred Molina, still my
0: favorite. Jesse's girl. <laughs> yeah. But we want to end on you because you're. And let's see. Let's find a good.
1: Well, you have mentioned dad band earlier. Let's encourage everybody. We're trying to make something more of dad band. Um, In an ideal world, we could do 10 half hour episodes that tell a whole story because I've got it all laid out. Uh, I'm writing a a feature version also. Um, But we, we made that with just with Cantrell and my buddy, Ted camp, who plays uh, the keyboard player in the band. Um, He and I, came up with he had the idea for the song. And then I said, well, if we're going to do a song and a video, we should make a short film. So that's how it evolved. We've got 1.1 million views on YouTube.
2: That's great. Yeah.
1: Um, and the response has been phenomenal. So we've only done the one, you know, we, we want to do more, but we're not going to do it. You know, we got to have a budget. we got to get paid. I'm not going to do it for free. Right. So, uh, so yeah, dad band on YouTube, dad,
2: Band. Band pretty on self-explanatory. YouTube with W.O. Brown.
1: Do you want to give it. us
0: a little premise of that or just go look it, it up?
1: Is, I can give you a one sentence premise. It is about the formation and dissolution of a suburban dad band on a single Saturday afternoon. <laughs>
2: i love it oh it's like the um the minivan commercial that was all the rage for a while did you see that one which one? Oh, it was um the suburban couple rocking the minivan it was right when i was in my minivan phase so i was like i was feeling the vibe but i'll look it up we'll send it to you <laughs> okay dad band everybody looked that up yep Very good. I want to make more. (laughs) You guys, look up W. Earl Brown on IMDb and just look at the plethora of movies and TV and your body of work. I mean, we're going back to backdraft to current day. It's amazing. And what a get. We're so honored that you came on our show. Couldn't be happier to meet you you and and talk with you.
1: All right. It's been fun. Yay. Thank you. you you so much.
2: Bye. Okay, folks, there you have it. That wraps up our interview. That was so cool. With W. Earl Brown Weens. Yes. How'd you feel about the whole thing? I just think he's a great guy. I think
0: he's interesting, and God, there's so many cool stories. I learned a lot, and I'm so happy to have met him so many years
2: ago, and I'm very excited that he came on the podcast. That's right. So you guys check him out at Dad Band on YouTube. Just look for that. Also, keep an eye on this guy because he's got a big upcoming project that's going to hit, I don't know when, but he's starting filming December through the spring. It's a big deal, and we saw a little info on the internet that, I don't know if it's leaked or not, but yeah, it's big stuff. Yeah, so keep your eye out on him, follow him on all his social media. I think he's real findable on um, Instagram, and I think he's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, W Earl Brown. Thank you for listening, and please follow us to mouseandweens.com. We are also over on Patreon. Mouse and weans, uh, is the backslash. Patreon.com backslash mouseandweens. And we want to thank our other patrons. We love you guys. We really appreciate your support, and it really does keep us motivated. And thank you for parting with your $5 a month. You are on your way to getting your free T-shirt if you listen for four months. We send you a t-shirt, we send you a swag bag of welcome gifts, we make you a song, all sorts of fun things. So do find us over on Patreon. While we're talking about it, let's look up W. Earl Brown on Cameo as well, and maybe he'll do his uh, any special requests that you have. He will do private special request audios and videos for you guys. So go check that out on Cameo. Anything else, Weens? I just thank you very much. We're happy to be
0: here, and please come back y'all that's right subscribe
2: tell your friends we love you bye
0: it's those blue eyes
2: that done me in
0: again those memories
2: of what
0: could have been those blue eyes that done me in-